Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. I love my country. I love God above that. And so because I love my country, I want to hold it accountable to not only its own ideals, but to what God has called all nations to be. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Steren, the host of the Truce Podcast. In this episode, I feature an interview I did with Caitlin Schass. Caitlin is the author of the book, The Liturgy of Politics, and she's also regularly featured on the Holy Post podcast. I don't usually do just straight interviews on this podcast, but I think that this episode works best with you just hearing Caitlin without a lot of interruptions. On normal episodes, there's a lot of music and production and edits. I think this one's going to work as it is. Plus, it gives me some time to work on some much more intricate episodes that are coming up soon. So please enjoy this interview with Caitlin Shess. Yeah, I'm Caitlin Shess. Uh, I'm a writer and a THM student at Dallas Theological Seminary. I work at a local church in Dallas doing young adult ministry, and uh, I recently released a book called The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Well, uh, first of all, uh, before we get to the book, you had a fantastic tweet on uh, the 2nd of October, 2020, and I'll just read it here. People get upset when I say Christians don't get to vote for their own protection or prosperity, but I only say it because it's supposed to be true for our whole lives, of our whole lives, lived for the sake of others. This isn't just about politics. This is about discipleship. And how do you see that play out in sort of the day-to-day where we are trying to protect ourselves? Yeah. So, I mean, some of it comes down to the way that we tend to think about religious liberty, which can be a, is a, is a really important and legitimate thing for Christians to be engaged in. Um, but we tend to think about it pretty exclusively for ourselves. So, you know, are our churches going to continue to have tax exempt status, which is again, you know, I think a valuable thing in our country for, for churches to have that freedom, but is our desire to see that happen, a desire to see institutions of all kinds of faiths flourish, especially those that serve their communities have the freedom of being tax exempt? Or is it because we want special status and we want to be protected and we're worried that we're losing kind of the cultural dominance that we've had in the past and we want to maintain it with whatever means necessary? Um, there's there's a very different motivation behind those two things. And so a lot of people will hear me say this. In fact, a lot of people on Twitter <laughs> responded to that particular tweet <laughs> saying, you know, you're upset about Christians fighting for religious liberty or fighting against abortion or you know any of those things. And it really wasn't about a specific issue. It was about the heart, the motivation behind it. Um, I am not a political scientist. Um, I'm a theologian. And so my desire tends to be not only how we vote, how we engage politically, but the motivation behind it. And so I want us to see, I want to see us fight for things like religious liberty. I would like to see abortions lessened in our country. I would like to see all sorts of issues that Christians have historically, and then plenty that Christians in our country have not historically advocated for, I would like to see us advocating for. But I would like to see that uh, motivated coming from a place of seeking the common good, seeking the flourishing of our communities, instead of how do we maintain sort of special privileges. I think a good example of this right now with COVID is churches that 
have said, you know, I'm not really interested in following the regulations that have been given to us when it comes to meeting outside or wearing masks or any of those things. I would like to have special privilege that other organizations or institutions don't have currently under the law to be able to meet because we're a church, um, as opposed to there have been some legitimate lawsuits where churches have said, hey, this other organization or this other company gets to operate in this way, and we would like those same rights too. I think there's a difference between those, and one of those could be how do we faithfully care for people's health while maintaining things that are really socially important for people versus, hey, I would like special treatment and I would like my own kind of preferences for how I worship to be upheld, even if it harms other people, even if other people aren't getting those same rights when it comes to you know other faiths that are not able to meet or other people that are not able to meet in other social contexts. Um, you can see the difference when people are advocating for things for their, for their own sake versus when they're advocating things for the, for the good of their community. Right. So, and I agree with you. It seems like we're asking for privileges we're not willing to give other people. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that can be really tricky. Uh, really tricky. You wrote, uh, political participation has a unique ability to inspire idolatry in people precisely because it so often involves promises of protection and provision, requires mm-hmm. sacrifices, legitimizes authority, and inspires submission and worship. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how we have sort of idolized politics? Yeah. So sometimes Christians uh, can talk about idolatry too broadly. We'll kind of use it in churches, especially the youth groups that I grew up in. It was like anything that you like too much, <laughs> that's probably an idol, you know? <laughs> and and I do think there's a place for Christians to think about, you know, how much do I love this thing? Is that too much? But really the way that scripture through its, you know, telling of stories, the way that scripture describes idolatry is something that requires sacrifices, maybe not physical sacrifices in the way that we might look back in the Old Testament and see them described, but sacrifices in the sense of, you know, my convictions, my finances, my relationships, any of those kinds of things that that I will sacrifice when the rubber hits the road and, and I have to kind of choose my idol over other things um, and, and gives promises of protection and provision, like I wrote, but just especially when it comes to politics, we tend to have not only, you know, parties or politicians that make those kinds of promises. That's just the form of it. Um, if you think about campaign ads, one that I'll bring up a lot is is Reagan's ad about it's morning in America. There's like rolling hills and a family moving into a house and the sun is rising over Capitol Hill and it's this beautiful picture. And there's, you know, economic statistics that are kind of flowing over those images, but it's really this pull of this is what life could be like. And this is what I you know, have given you, what I promise to continue to give you. That's a captivating story. And so the way that we tend to engage with that kind of story is not, oh, those are interesting economic statistics. I, I think I might prefer him over his opponent. No, we tend to, just as humans, our hearts are pulled towards things that we love. And so an idol in politics makes a lot of sense because affective images, promises of protection are just the regular language and framework of how we work, especially when it comes to things like fear. Um, You know, common campaign ads, I just saw one yesterday with my roommate watching TV was, you know, dark images. Every single picture of the opponent was in black and white. And then the words over it were in red and it was really intense. I couldn't really tell you what specific issues this person had, you know, what the opponent had with the with the person they were uh, campaigning against, but it was scary. Um, and it used images not just of the, the politician, but also of, you know, hospital rooms and um, people in really rundown communities and, and, you know, images that would inspire fear or concern in people on a really affective, deep level. And so 
we're susceptible to those things. And, and politicians and parties, they know how humans work sometimes better than the church often acts like we know how humans work in that our hearts are driving our, our life and work in the world. And so it doesn't mean that we don't engage. It doesn't mean we're not involved, but it does mean that this is a unique realm in which it's not just our assent to political ideas, to propositions that we've said, oh, I agree with that. That's not all that's happening. There's something really deeper and effective happening. And when we listen to a politician speak and think, oh, I agree with that, we have to be conscious of not only do I agree with maybe their description of the world, but am I suddenly being drawn into desiring them to be the protection or provision that really should be reserved for our relationship to God? And are, am I asking them to be my primary community in a way that we really should only reserve for the church? Things like that. Yeah. And I think that your book does a really good job of drawing the line that it's not bad to be involved in politics. Mm-hmm. You see that as a, as a way to love our neighbors, uh, but it can become an unhealthy reliance on them being our security. That's essentially yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and that 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 they are going to provide for you, whereas God uh, won't. Or you know, when really we should be pr- relying on God mm-hmm. to provide for us. Um, that's that's very powerful. And actually, in, in your book, you you lay out four false gospels. Maybe we can walk through these four false gospels that, that you're seeing yeah. in, in the more conservative circles and also in the liberal ones. Uh, how about prosperity? Where where does that crop up? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of evangelicals will hear the prosperity gospel and they'll think, oh, I know that. And it's not me. It's the it's the pastor with a jet and a flashy suit that asks you to send seed money to you know get your bigger wealth in the future. Um, and yet the underlying logic that God most desires for us to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous, and especially I think in conservative circles, the way that the prosperity gospel tends to work out is not just do I have enough faith for those things, but am I working hard? Am I pulling myself up by my bootstraps? If you are being responsible, if you are not lazy, then you will be healthy, wealthy, and, and prosperous. And maybe we don't attribute that entirely to God. Maybe we recognize that that would be sort of theologically dangerous, but we do attribute that to the free market or to just kind of the working of our community. And we say, hey, things are pretty much fair and set up in a way that if you work hard, you will achieve what you should. And Not only is that not how scripture describes wealth and poverty with those kinds of moral things attached to them, that if you're in poverty, then that's some kind of moral failure on your part. And if you're wealthy, then you deserve it. But also that's just not how sin is described in scripture as something that the world is not fundamentally fair, that systems as well as people's hearts are broken. And so we we can't really assume that these things will work out even in maybe what you think might be the best economic system or the best kind of even more locally, the best kind of system for your community, there will still be flaws. There will still be people who experience injustice and inequality and our inability to see that politically and engage with it in all sorts of different ways. I'm not trying to advocate you know, a particular system, but that our inability to address those inequalities is pretty directly rooted in our fundamental belief that things are fair because we have experienced oftentimes the positive results of them for ourselves. Right. It, it, we're kind of going off of our own experience rather mm-hmm. than facts or figures. We think it, the way that it is for me is the way it is for everybody else. Yeah. And that can be super dangerous. Um, and and also the sort of flip side of that, you touched on it really quickly, but I want to kind of circle back the um, – the idea that if if I'm poor, it must be because I'm lazy or you know not doing something right, uh, when in fact there could be a whole lot of other things that could be going on there. And that yeah. fundamentally changes how I then react to the poor. 
Yes. Yeah. And one of the things that's been, that was the most eye-opening for me being, you know, growing up in churches like this is realizing that we thought we were just assenting to a particular political position, you know, that the free market will, is the best system and that as, as little government intervention as possible is a good thing. We thought that we were just agreeing to that political position and we weren't, we were also immersing ourselves in a story about the world that said that, if you are poor, it is because of a moral failure of yours. And then found ourselves in a position where that didn't just impact the way we voted, the way we thought that it would. It also impacted the way we treated individual people who are in poverty, the way our churches served. Um, I know a lot of evangelical churches that are very engaged when it comes to caring for their communities, like serving at a soup kitchen, things like that. But there's sort of still is a mindset in terms of relationships and where money should go that people who are in poverty are irresponsible and lazy. And so we have to maybe care for them, but in a very paternalistic way and in a way that assumes, you know, if it, unless they change their mindset, they're not going to get out of this. I can help all that I want, but really it comes down to their own moral failing. And so I can't really fix that part. Instead of recognizing that there might be more than charity that we could do, that there might be structural issues. There's a, a fantastic church in my neighborhood that provides all of this like training about entrepreneurship, but also just like gives people bikes so that they can go to work, you know, tries to fix structural issues where it's not just how can I encourage you to work because you must be lazy, but how can I fix things that for me, I had a social safety net where if I needed something to kind of jumpstart my involvement in a career, I could do that. I had the money to the, the kind of baseline money that's required to be involved in some of those things. And they didn't. How could we address that instead of just, you know, trying to tell them to be better? <laughs> right. Yeah. So fundamentally that there, there are people who do kind of need a kick in the pants from time mm -hmm. to time. Sure. They get going, but they give everybody else a bad name. Mm -hmm. um, and that there are systems, as we've seen, uh, especially uh, regarding African Americans, um, mm -hmm. that hold people back. You know, laws that stop them from getting uh, loans and things in the '60s and '70s, um, mm -hmm. or covenants that kept them out of certain neighborhoods. And we, we've, we look at that and we say, "Oh, they could have done. They could have done it. They could have worked around mm -hmm. it." And it's just that's not. The godly response, yeah. you know, um, uh, and you don't see Jesus doing that to people. Yeah. Um, the second thing that you brought up was uh, the false gospel was patriotism, um, and this is this is when I also get kind of blowback on on this show because uh, <laughs> I, I I don't think patriotism is necessarily bad. Sure. Um, and it's not necessarily uh, something that only the United States does. It's something we've done. People have done since you know recorded time. We've been mm -hmm. patriotic, and, and part of it is what keeps us safe as a people. We bond together as a nation, uh, but it can become an idol. Can you kind of talk to that idolatry and that false gospel? Yeah, I think what makes it so especially dangerous for Christians, um, and especially for American Christians, like you said, you know, people of all different nations can can have both a really positive form of patriotism and then a really negative form, um, both individually and then as a whole country, the kind of culture that you have could be, could have, could ebb and flow. Um, but especially for Christians, I think in America, where we have often told a story about the founding of our country that relies upon the idea that it was founded on Christian values, that um, we find ways to fight over you know, which founding fathers were as close to the kind of Christian we want them to be as they are, you know, we, yeah. we really are committed to this idea. And that's sort of strange. It's strange that we're, we're that committed to the idea. But assuming that we are, and many of us, I mean, I grew up in churches where if you had told me 
that wasn't a true story, or at least that it was more complicated than I thought, that would have been a real surprise to me because it was just told so often, you know, we right. have to return to our Christian roots and this is what our country means and how it always has been. And that's a real problem for Christians because one, scripture does not describe America <laughs> at all. Um, and it describe America as having kind of a special covenant with God, the way we tend to talk about it in the most extreme versions of this story. Um, and so then we end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. Yes. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history when it comes to slavery and genocide of native people and subjugation of women, or we have to say that those are Christian values. And we've done both of those things throughout our history, either defended those things or pretended they didn't exist. And neither of those, I think, are a faithful Christian way of both finding loyalty with people who are close to us, finding um, a biblical reason to care about the flourishing of our immediate city, um, our nation, the people that are close to us, but the balance that comes with doing that and also being honest about the failures, the evil, the sin of our own country, um, and even better loving it by calling it to account um, to its own self-description, the things that for the founding of our country were, were high ideals that we immediately did not live up to. But also more importantly, I think, this is an application of Romans 13 that is not the one we tend to go to, but that we have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. There's um, a wide description throughout all of scripture of how nations are judged by God for things like how they treat other people in their own country, how they treat foreigners. Um, those are things that, that we have the ability as Christians to hold our nation to account. But if we are too deeply committed to a story that says we've always been a Christian nation and the principles that we started with are Christian principles, it really prevents us from being what would be a better form of patriotism, which is to say, I love my country. I love God above that. And so because I love my country, I want to hold it accountable to not only its own ideals, but to what God has called all nations to be. Yeah. And you were talking about that sort of shock of having to learn you know, what the United States really is. As you get older and get more educated, I'm like, wait a second. Uh, I'm sure that listening to this show, uh, that's what I've been doing this season. I've been kind of slowly pulling back the curtain. Um, can you speak to anybody who maybe is just hearing these things for the first time and uh, maybe is kind of wondering if their faith is real because mm. we've been hearing that the United States is Christianity, basically. How, how, do, how, do, how do we respond? How do we hold on to a faith that has been misused. Yeah. You know, when I, I started seminary in 2016, um, so like first semester was all about the election. And um, in a similar way, probably to what people are feeling if they're learning, you know, really heartbreaking things about their nation's past, really heartbreaking things about how Christians have engaged um, in, in you know, some positive ways and in lots of negative ways as well. Um, I felt that weight of watching leaders that I had really trusted, not just support someone I couldn't support, but do it in a way that felt um, not faithful to the values they'd given me. Um, they were using language and justifications that they didn't use with prior presidents uh, who are not Republican. And it really felt destabilizing. It felt like, why am I in school studying to, to teach these things, to know these things about the Bible, when the people that know the Bible the best in my life 
um, are oftentimes compromising on what they've always said the Bible meant about our public life. Um, And the thing that was so comforting that semester was that it was also my first semester of Greek, which should not be a comforting thing because it was hard. (laughs) It was comforting in a strange way because I literally remember the morning of the election, you know, we didn't know any results yet, but I was just distraught with things I was seeing on social media and really angry Christians, um, really feeling like they had to kind of fight for the, for the continuance of their country in a way that just felt wrong. I was sitting in a Starbucks working on Greek, and it just really hit me in that moment as I was taking a passage of scripture that I knew so well. It happened to be one that a lot of Christians would often use in these kinds of conversations, um, and I had watched them misuse it. And all of a sudden, it was in a language that was unfamiliar to me, and it really grounded me in the realization that this faith that they were misusing, that they had historically misused, was not their own that it was ancient, that it was distant geographically and from history, from where we are today, and that it had survived thousands of years of Christians being faithful and some being unfaithful and things being tumultuous and difficult and strange. And so it was a really grounding thing to remember that, you know, when Jesus says to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that we are the ends of the earth, (laughs) that we were so far from where the story started, um, and that the Holy Spirit has sustained the church through all of those things, that it is not the property of those who would misuse it. Yeah. Well, I think it's been really remarkable, even just this year with COVID, how a lot of these things that we hold on to in Christianity, our, our false idols have been tested in just the last few years uh, in, in very real ways. And I, I think it has shown me that um, our faith really needs to be built on solid rock uh, and not on something that can be taken away easily, like our health. Uh, with a disease or, you know, our politics, because those things swing like a pendulum, you know, mm-hmm. go back and forth from party to party. We're starting to see how many things that we've built on that are sand. And I think that that's kind of the, the good thing about this era, but it also has, has shown me uh, how many of my friends have struggled in, in this time mm-hmm. uh, with so many questions because we've given them so many false promises. Mm-hmm. So, and that actually kind of ties into the third of the four false gospels, which is security. Can you, can you speak into that one? Yeah. So security tends to be the one I think um, surprises people initially because we talk a lot, at least we have in the last few years, about things like prosperity and patriotism. But um, realizing how on both an individual level and a community level, security has often been treated by Christians in America as the highest good. Not that it is not a good. It is. Um, being physically secure is a positive thing. And it's, I think, something obviously, I mean, rooted in creation and then in eternity that we will have security in that sense. And yet in this time in between those places, we're not promised that bodily security on earth. And so when we treat it as a ultimate good um, that we can then justify all sorts of other evils in order to achieve, that's when it becomes an idol. And so we see this, I think, individually. We see it when it comes to um, Christians who you know, might really care about something like missions or serving their community. But if it might involve anything unsafe, then that's an automatic no. Um, It involves things like, uh, I think a pastor was the one who told me this, a story about he went to visit a parishioner um, who was not only in a gated community, but then in a smaller gated community within the gated community. So there was like (laughs) multiple gates to get to their house. And he just thought, you know, what are you... Like, what are you so afraid of that the slightly less rich people will do to you, (laughs) you know, that you have to have this many gates? Um, And it really prevents us from having relationships with people who are different from us when we're so security focused. And then communally and nationally, that involves things like 
border security, which can be a really good thing, but also, again, not just the policy, but the story that animates the policy is often one of any injustice, any evil at the border could be justified as long as we are safe, as long as we are secure. The way that we can caricaturize um, immigrants or mistreat them because it's it's about security and safety. Um, again, something that happens on, on both sides and in all sorts of different ways, but when our ultimate good is our physical safety and security, not just as something that should be balanced with other goods, but something that overrides all other concerns, including protecting the vulnerable, um, that's when it functions as an idol. Right. I mean, if you read, like I'm reading the book of Acts right now, and uh, you see Paul being beaten <laughs> up and thrown out of town and bitten by snakes and shipwrecked. And and I mean, and then the central figure of the whole Bible, Jesus is crucified mm-hmm. uh, and for doing the right thing, for being exactly where God wants him to be. And, and we have this idea that if I'm in God's will, that's the safest place I can be. Well, bodily, maybe not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, uh, we get fed those, those cute little lines and they're just not always true. Yeah. Well, and I think it also, it matters not only when it comes to our, our physical security, but then when it comes to how we assume that if someone else has ended up in a place of, of not being physically secure, that yeah. it must be their own decisions. Um, whether that comes to the way that that black people have interactions with police and people will say, well, if you had followed the rules, if you had agreed, you know, then you would have been fine. There's not only, you know, a part of that story that that's rooted in, in racist assumptions about people, but it's also, I think even more foundationally, there's an assumption of the world can't be that chaotic and evil. And the way that I can feel safe about it is knowing that if I was in that position, I would have responded in such a way that I wouldn't be in a position of physical insecurity. And so if someone else is, they've made their own decisions, it's their own fault. Instead of recognizing that you can be as as faithful a believer, you can follow all of the rules, you know, and and you can still end up in a position of physical insecurity. I think Paul is a great example of that because we'll go to Romans 13 and say, well, look, he says you shouldn't fear the sword if you're doing all the right things. What he means in that passage has been complicated and fought over by Christians for a long time. But what it certainly cannot mean is that if you follow all the rules, you'll be fine. Because Paul's own life testified to the fact that being a faithful Christian and and trying to be honoring of government authorities did not always land him in positions of security. Right. And throughout history, we haven't seen that. I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. again, earlier this season, I talked about uh, how Christians were persecuted in Russia uh, under the the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and um, and communism, and it, it, we still have this idea in our heads that if I am a, a good Christian and I believe, then nothing bad will happen to me. Yeah. Where throughout history it has not been that way. Uh, we're we're actually kind of just in this little happy little bubble uh, mm-hmm. that's fairly new uh, in the history of the world, and and we think that because it's been this way the whole time I've been alive that it will always be this way. And like, like you said, uh, our idea that our African-American brothers and sisters who are um, being harassed by police officers, th- that they deserve it because they yeah. must have done something wrong. And that that allows us in a lot of ways to not have to take responsibility mm-hmm. um, or have compassion. And uh, it gets us out of being the church. I, I think yeah. in, in the same way that, uh, as we said earlier, if I can think that all poor people are lazy, that means I don't have to help them. Mm-hmm. The same way, kind of gives me a ticket out of there. We'll be back with more after this short message. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. 
our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So the fourth one is supremacy. We hold on to this one pretty dearly. Can you can you walk us through what supremacy is as far as a false gospel? Yeah, so this is probably the one that that people will um, least initially identify with, um, because a lot of us would say, you know, I'm not racist. Um, I might go to a predominantly white church or live in a predominantly white neighborhood, but but I don't I don't have any personal prejudice or bias against others, and that. I hope is true. Um, I think it's probably true of a lot of Christians today, but um, it doesn't really get at kind of the story of white supremacy in our country in which especially white um, children growing up in our country, statistically more than any other group of children, live in communities, go to schools, go to grocery stores with their parents and daycare and all these things that are overwhelmingly white in which they have very little interaction with people who are not like them. And so then the only interaction that they tend to have is through media and stereotypes works its way in and and biases work its way in. And so if the only people that you have close relationships with where you recognize diversity in their opinions and their talents and their um, in their intellect, you know, is only white people, then you're going to end up with assumptions that you may not intend, that you might hate when you recognize them in your own heart. And I hope you do, but that are humming underneath the surface, especially in the church, which is you know, continues to be one of the most segregated institutions in our country for lots of reasons that we might think our current pastor or leadership is out of their control. And yet we are suffering the consequences of it, sometimes benefiting from it when it comes to the churches um, that tend to be in neighborhoods with really good schools and really wealthy neighborhoods and those kinds of things. And so when we look at the history of American churches, especially white American churches, we not only see benefiting from decades of segregation, but also being formed by worship and liturgy and rituals that prioritize a certain vision of the world and of life that is common in white families and white communities and is less common in other communities. And so part of what happens is not that we are explicitly prejudiced, but that we assume that the best kind of life for someone is one that is not just shaped by biblical values, but is shaped by what most white families and picket fence neighborhoods have had. And that causes us to have prejudice and and biases that we might not explicitly recognize, but that work its way out when we finally do have interactions with people who are not like us, or even before that, when it comes to social media and how we vote and things like that. And so it's really important, I think, if you're not a Christian and you are in a pretty homogenous community, I don't think that's good for you as a human, but I understand why you don't have any reason to really care about that. But for Christians who have a vision of eternity where God has made for himself a new people from all of the nations in which we have diversity and differences and yet we are united and that that is the vision that we are supposed to be striving after, then when our communities are homogenous, it not only is a cause for concern because we desire diversity, but because we know based on the epistles and the way that the church functioned very early on, homogeny breeds prejudice and bias and our inability to see how we might be mistreating others. Well, what would be an example of something practical that we do that we assume as a white Christian church, uh, that if if you're not doing this, then you're you know sinning and that you should be doing it this way, even though it's not actually biblical that, that we're holding mm. on to? 
I mean, one example that, that initially comes to mind is just the way that we, um, <laughs> it kind of relates to the patriotic gospel, but the way that we talk about America, mm-hmm. the way that we celebrate the 4th of July, things like that, that we might go, that's being a faithful, um, responsible citizen. And yet we are unaware of why that might be a more difficult holiday to celebrate for a community that has not experienced America in the same way that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, another example would be, I mean, I go to a, I'm, I'm on staff at a predominantly white church. And if you were to show up on a Sunday morning, the music that we sing and the way that we respond to our pastor is pretty indicative of a lot of white churches. (laughs) We play a lot of like, you know, Christian radio kind of music on Sunday mornings. We're pretty silent during the sermon. Um, We assume that that's being a faithful, respectful part of the service. Um, If we, and this happened not long ago, a family came, um, an African-American family, and just verbally responded to the music and to the pastor in a way that was different. And to people in our congregation, there was an assumption that that was disruptive, that was respectful. And that's that's not a biblical idea. That's you having an idea of what your community has always been like. And then not only assuming that that's the best, but then assuming that other expressions of the faith must not just be different, they must be wrong. And also kind of, again, the stereotypes you've learned through media, not only bringing in, hey, that's different and I don't like it, but also maybe bringing in I have an assumption that I might not be honest about all the time that a black person in, you know, a predominantly white space will just generally be disruptive, that they're loud or aggressive or all those kinds of things that we would hate to find in our own hearts. Yeah. And yet that's how sin works. It's deceptive and it it worms its way into things that we don't expect. And we might never say any of those things. And yet our default reaction in a moment like that might be one that we hate and we recognize that when it comes to other sins, but when it comes to racism, we tend to defend ourselves in a way that that probably isn't helpful for actual growth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you even see this in ways that uh, the, the different ways we dress in the white church, church versus other mm. churches. Um, you know, we expect uh, in some denominations a tie for gentlemen. You know, and it's like, well, that may not be the way it is in other churches, and you're not going to find mm-hmm. a tie in the Bible anywhere as right. required attire. <laughs> Um, and it actually may say something about our class expectations um, that uh, you know everybody's going to be able to dress as well as I do mm-hmm. um, because you know we're all as wealthy as I am, but not everybody is, and not everybody has right. the money for that wardrobe um, or to keep it up. So right. yeah, it it does sneak through in funny little ways, um, even generally generationally. In my church, uh, there's there's a whole contingent of people that gets upset if we don't sing the doxology at the end of the service, the the song. Mm. <laughs> and it's you know it's a great song, uh, and I, I actually sing it uh, whenever I can when I get to the top of a mountain when I go hiking. Uh, mm. But it is not in the Bible that we sing the doxology. Right. <laughs> um, you know, but we we do expect others to carry on those things. Um, and if if they don't, then we think, oh, they they must be sinning, when it's yeah. it's really just a cultural difference. Yeah, and we've lost, I think, a sense of partially because it's how the Old Testament describes things, but it's carried into the New of our worship being a sacrifice. Yeah. And if that's true, could that involve the sacrificing of our preferences for the sake Oof. of the larger community? <laughs> that's that's a tough one. But it really, I mean, especially in a time of COVID, could I sacrifice my preference mm-hmm. to not wear a mask? Could I sac- my preference to meet inside instead of outside? You know, but then in just the everyday life of the church, um, you know, I kind of said a moment ago that we sing a lot of like Christian radio type songs. I don't love that. Mm-hmm. And there are times when I get frustrated on a Sunday morning because of the song choice. And it's a reminder, you know, I'll look over and see someone who clearly this is a meaningful song for them. Mm. And it doesn't mean that we don't 
think theologically about how our music and our services are forming people. That's like the heart of this book that I wrote. But but we also recognize that there's a difference between things that are actually meaningful and important and things that are preferences that that we should sacrifice for the the good of the larger community. Yeah. Yeah. And that that could be even, dare I say, political things that we need to sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's not so important that I stand up in church and and make my political stance. You know, when I could just be looking after people's welfare and their souls. Um, yeah. Oof. Yeah. Got to sacrifice that stuff too. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this whole tie to the United States that that we see in, in modern white evangelical churches. One of the things that's been difficult for me just doing this show is that for some people just questioning that, that connection can mm. feel blasphemous or even questioning our history. Because if the United States is a Christian nation, then it carries over that everything the United States has done has been godly. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, when we believe that, it means that uh, we are then, like you said, okay with uh, you know the trail of tears, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, kicking Mexicans out of Mexico, which you know was California and New Mexico before, but now is Mm -hmm. further south, um, the way we've uh, treated Native Alaskans or African Americans, um, that we we then say that that was part of God's way that he desired us to treat people. Mm -hmm. And that's really unfortunate because it it really bogs down our faith and it it makes it troubling in these kinds of times um, because there's so many people now wandering around looking because their local churches are, you know, revealing their true colors of being kind of bigoted. And they're yeah. like, well, shoot, what what of this is real and what of it isn't real? Um, and it's it's a frustrating time, but I also feel like these kinds of times can really strengthen the church uh, because it, it makes us come back to what are we really? You know, it brings us back to our mission. One of the things that really struck me too was uh, this idea that you wrote about that the early church was marked by their goodness, and yet today we focus on personal growth. Um, how, how does that? impact us as a church today? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, and, you know, anytime you study history, I think especially when you study really far history of the church, um, what things suddenly become strange to you that once felt really normal. And, um, you know, I took a class um, early in seminary on spiritual formation throughout history. And so we talked about, you know, the mystics and and different disciplines throughout history. And we talked about, um, you know, Methodists and how they thought about, you know, all these different kind of expressions of the faith. But one of the things that we kept talking about was that anytime something initially appears strange to us, you know, our approach should be one of asking not just what is strange about this in this context, but why in my context is this strange? And one of the things that I think was helpful was sort of imagining someone from another context coming in and looking at our churches or maybe my daily quiet time or whatever and what they would think was strange. And I think early Christians coming into our churches or seeing an individual Christian, you know, in their daily quiet time, they would be really surprised, one, at the fact that we were having an individual quiet time, I think, you know, not just in prayer by ourselves, but we have our own Bible <laughs> that we can like open yeah. ourselves and look at and and that that probably would be pretty exciting to them. And on the other hand, they might recognize in ways that we struggle to recognize the, the pitfalls that can come with that, which is that we see ourselves as having sort of autonomous ability to interpret and maybe use as a tool this thing that we can carry around. You know, I have like 10 of them in the room I'm in right now of all these different <laughs> translations. And, you know, and, and I often wield it as a weapon without even realizing I'm doing that. 
And that's harder to do when you are dependent upon a larger community to receive the word for you. Like when you don't have your own Bible, um, I think that that would change a lot of ways that you interpret it and a lot of ways that you interpret your relationship to the church as not just something external to your faith that kind of confirms a prior relationship with God, but as something incredibly integral that connects you with the community of believers, the communion of saints, the the interpretation of scripture that's been handed down as an inheritance. Um, that would really change not only the practices that we have all of the time, but then as you said, the the sense that we have of our communal identity and then that community having an identity for the sake of the community that it's in, the, the sake of the whole world and the good of our neighbor, as opposed to what am I doing in my individual quiet time or in my spiritual disciplines that makes me internally pious, that makes me a good person, that makes me feel like I'm a good person. Um, that's kind of foreign to the way that scripture is scripture describes the church, um, the way that spiritual disciplines have been practiced throughout history, that they are intended to, to form us outward um, into a community that can engage the larger community in a positive way. Um, even just thinking really early on of Christians who would bury the dead, who were impoverished and not able to financially afford for their own burial, who would care for the sick uh, when you didn't want to get sick. And so they wouldn't be cared for if, again, if you were impoverished, um, who welcomed women at astounding numbers really early on, not only valuing them, um, even those who were widowed or single, but also caring for children who were abandoned, especially girls who were abandoned because they were less valued than, than boys when they were born. Um, all of these things that gave them a strange identity in the larger community that they were in. I mean, we have many writings of outsiders describing them as a strange political club or, you know, rallying support for issues that the the government wasn't caring for, um, things that, that we would often not be identified as today. And I think in America, one of the reasons is that our focus, if you were to come to one of our churches, is usually how can we fix your soul, which is an important part of it, but is not the whole story. Uh, if there were a takeaway from this whole conversation, I, I'm going to guess it would be that we should be less focused on ourselves and more focused on others in doing the work of the church. Uh, is there, is there, am I getting that right? Is that what you would encourage people to do? Yeah. I think the thing that I say all of the time is that our spiritual formation and our political participation are not separate, not just because I don't want them to be separate, but because they share a common purpose, which is the life of the world and the good of our neighbor. And if we were to think of both of those things, both of which can be twisted to be internally focused, if we were to think of both of those things as, as externally motivated for the flourishing of the world that God has promised to redeem, then we would be better off. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I know that this last year has been stressful to, well, basically all of us, but we can use this time to reflect on how we're doing. Not to feel bad about ourselves, our communities, our country, or our church, but to be realistic about them. To see where we are serving others and where we are serving ourselves. My guest today was Caitlin Chess. Her book again is The Liturgy of Politics. I'll have links to it in the show notes and on the website. As I said at the beginning, this is not the typical episode of Truce, but I'm in production on some very intricate episodes of the show, and I need to give myself some time to work on those, so I'll be featuring conversations with interesting people from time to time. Truce is listener-supported. Right now, I'm trying to do this with a full-time job, but I'd eventually like to focus on just this project. That would mean more frequent episodes, more bonus content, and a lot less stress for me. If you'd like to be a part of what I'm doing here at Truce, visit trucepodcast.com slash donate. 
If you become a monthly patron, you'll also gain access to a bonus interview I did with Caitlin. That website again is trucepodcast.com slash donate. Please take a moment to rate and review this show on your podcasting app. It helps people to find the show. God willing, I'll be back in two weeks with more. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.